Hello, I am Rob Carroll. I am the Senior Gaming Consultant with Economics Design. For those of you that might not be familiar with us, we are an economy consulting agency working with game developers and other companies to help create robust and sustainable economies. We work with developers that might be looking for somebody to review and validate their design, all the way to fully designing a thriving gaming ecosystem. My guest today is John Radoff. John, if you want to give a quick introduction for yourself. Oh, thanks so, so much for having me on the podcast, Rob. So Absolutely. My, my name is John Radoff. Uh, I'm CEO of Beamable. We're a platform for building games. We bring all the live services capabilities to games. It's kind of like the Unity, but for the back end, it gives you all the things you need in the cloud and online to build a game. Um, I got my start building games, though. I've spent most of my life actually making games. So when I was 19, actually, I met my future wife in an online game, dropped out of college and, and started a game studio with her, which was an online game on the internet. And it's that time built a bunch of things, built games based on Star Trek and Game of Thrones, shipped games to about 20 million players. So I've been living the entire spectrum of online games to the technology to implement them and really just trying to delight players with things that you can do and, and new experiences online. Oh, that's very cool. So you have worked for other companies and started your own over the years? Uh, actually, every company that I've worked for is one that I started. So I don't know, strange life story, I guess. But ever, ever since uh, the time I was a paper boy, delivering newspapers for the Worcester Telegram. I think that was the last job I had where I where I actually worked for someone else or at least in a company that I didn't hire. Now I work for my customers is the way I think of it because ah. uh, you know our customers are game studios, game publishers. When I was building games, I was still working for our, my customers then, which were the players of games. So, but Very no, terrible. not not, uh, not another company. When we built Star Trek and, and Game of Thrones, that was all with Disruptor Beam, which is a game mm -hmm. studio I started. So how do you think that uh, that kind of experience of always having your own studio as opposed to kind of being under someone else's uh, authority, how do you think that experience has kind of made your uh, travels through game development a bit different? Well, we had a lot of freedom. Um, and that included freedom to make a lot of mistakes. So it was a good education, albeit in expensive education. So. <laughs> So I had that going for me. Um, you know, I, I often point to the Star Trek game we built as a good example of that. It took us a long time to get the Star Trek game right. We we spent really the first year or so just trying different ideas in the game system, everything from more of a you know deck building kind of game format to a JRPG kind of game. Ended up building this very innovative storytelling game format where you collect characters and decide how you're going to use them in the course of a storyline mm -hmm. that came out of having basically failed about four or five times on other ideas of what it could be. So maybe I would have gotten there faster, um, just sort of replicating or cloning an existing game system that had worked for another game studio, but we had to kind of invent our own way forward with that game. I think, you know, being able to do that kind of innovation uh, is, you know, you're very fortunate. I know most of the people in the games industry, you know, maybe work on one particular title for four years and they're just kind of doing the same thing. Uh, I think having that freedom is something that uh, is very fortunate. And the the lessons that I'm sure you've learned along the way have uh, probably really helped formulate a lot of those designs. Um could you talk a little bit more about the Star Trek game? I know it's it's been an extremely popular game, um, very successful, and you know I'm sure people would love to kind of hear some of your thoughts on, you know, how you came up with some of those designs and and what you really liked in there. Star Trek is a tough IP. Um, it's a great IP. Mm -hmm. I love Star Trek. I grew up with Star Trek, but it's a tough IP to turn into a game. And the key reason why is that at its core, Star Trek. You know, it's right in the name. It's the Trek part. It's the voyage. It's the discovery. It's the experience. And what comes out of Gene Roddenberry's vision for that world mm -hmm. was this optimistic future for humankind in which we'd explore the galaxy. And we would use things like engineering and science and diplomacy to, to solve problems. Now, 
yes, violence was sometimes a part of how storylines in Star Trek went, mm -hmm. but violence wasn't always the answer and it wasn't the dominant theme of Star Trek. So capturing that is very hard in Star Trek. How, how to do that in a game is very hard because when games are just built around violent conflict, frankly, it can be a lot easier to figure out what your game system is. Like if I was building a Star Wars game, we could have done lightsaber battles or we could have done starship battles. Great. Like a lot of problems are solved for you out of the gate by knowing mm -hmm. what the core game loop is going to be. And then we could have really focused on just making the combat really great. Yeah. With Star Trek, you know, there was this complexity around the storytelling, which we ended up coming up with this it was literally the timeline feature. So the game was called is called Star Trek Timelines. And, and we came up with this timeline feature, which is a game system that that had never been in a game before. And it was about choosing your path and going through multiple paths and seeing how it could play out with a unique team of characters and making skill roles along the way and making sure that you brought in the right team to do it again, very Star Trek y because a lot of Star Trek episodes revolved around this idea of the away team yep. that you would take with you. And then, based on that team, they would have to confront certain challenges along the way. And if you, and if you met those challenges well, then you would succeed. And then, because it was also timelines, it was in four dimensions, we were dealing with this whole conflict across the universe of different kinds of timelines converging and intersecting and getting all messed up, you could actually go and time travel and, and try out different ways of resolving the same situation, which which brought in a tremendous amount of replayability to that game mechanic as well. So quite a lot of uh, complexity in the design. In the design and then in the economy as well, which is appropriate to talk about because I know that's your specialty, Rob. So, uh, you know, also on top of the complexity of Star Trek is figuring out, well, where is the economy of the game going to come from if you're building a free-to-play game? So you could certainly build lots of types of games with Star Trek. They don't all have to be free-to-play games, but our constraint for Star Trek timelines, given that it was going to be on mobile, at least mobile primarily, it, it does happen to exist on Steam and Windows and PC incarnations as well. But the principal audience for that game is mobile and very difficult to monetize a game successfully on mobile unless you embrace a free-to-play economy, um, So, which is what we did. So in this game, it also revolves around character collecting. And that was a good match to the game system we came up with because the whole concept of the timelines game loop, which was resolving stories as you go through these little mini adventures, was selecting which away team you go with, which meant amongst all the characters that you could collect, who are the characters that I want to bring? And there's sort of like the part of that game that plays in your mind mm -hmm. as the player, as well as the game mechanical part. The game mechanical part was, well, certain adventures need a doctor and a scientist and an engineer, for example, to meet the challenges. And if you bring the wrong people or you don't have medical skill along the way, or you don't have the Klingon to solve the very Klingon specific thing for this adventure, then it'll either be very hard to complete or you won't be able to complete it. Mm -hmm. But there's this whole other part of Star Trek too, which is if you're a Star Trek fan, like I am through the years, you've always thought about, well, geez, what would happen if I actually got what if? Spock? Yeah, exactly. All the what, if, like, I mean, not Star Trek, but there's a whole what if, you know, show <laughs> around Marvel, for example. Like, yeah. so a whole what if, what if you did something different? What if you created a team or an away team out of combinations that have never appeared on Star Trek before? Like, what happens when I put Spock and Picard? in the same team like what is what'll that do like and what kind of possibilities does that unlock not only game mechanically but just in my mind as the fantasy of that adventure is playing out so the we, philosophical uh, discussions are endless uh, totally <laughs> going together yeah totally so it it allowed us to explore a lot of space so i i feel like we kind of hit the trifecta there we mm -hmm. delivered First and foremost, the authentic Star Trek experience where 
we were true to the story, true to Gene Roddenberry's vision and, and created a narrative that actually made sense for Star Trek and the universe of Star Trek. We hit the game mechanics, which was a very compelling core loop that mm-hmm. embraced that narrative. And then lastly, we had an economy that related to all of that in a way that was meaningful, that wasn't bolted on and appeals to the fantasy in the mind of many Star Trek fans, as well as people who do things like go to conventions and collect autographs and things like that. So we were we were just checking a lot of boxes in the Star Trek experience. And, and that was the Star Trek game we built. Oh, that's an impressive story there. Awesome. Um, I do, I have some other questions I would love to get into you with you on uh, developing games in Web 2 and Web 3 and you know, some questions with AI. I do want to geek out a little bit more on the design side, uh, as I have one of the uh, sure. the original veterans of the, the industry here with a, a tremendous amount of experience. Um, one one more question on the Star Trek side. Uh, as, a, as a designer, as a developer, uh, I would imagine you had some fairly restrictive uh, limitations on what you could do with the characters, with the cards that you were making for the game. Uh, was that did that make the design easier or more difficult when you you couldn't just kind of create a bunch of characters that seemed cool, but you had to really stay true to the lore? Constraints are a positive in game system design. So the fact that we had all this lore to work with mm-hmm. was one of the really great things about. Star Trek and Game of Thrones and, and some of the IP that I've been fortunate enough to, to work with over the years. And you wouldn't want to, although we did eventually add a few unique characters, they're they're kind of in the periphery of the experience. The core of the experience were all these characters that you were very familiar with. Yeah. Um, having watched Star Trek episodes. And at the time we started making the game, there had been over 700 plus episodes of Star Trek that had been on the air across all the different categories of Star Trek. So and in addition to that, you didn't just have each individual named character, you had all these different versions of them. Like you had Picard as a captain, mm-hmm. but you also had Picard as like in his noir outfit when he went onto the holodeck and and did like a role-playing game with his crew so so you had all these different versions and storylines to draw upon Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that when you're working with ip yeah that i think you you sort of have to get over yourself a little bit as a game developer and choose where you're going to focus your creative energies so if you're someone who must design every character and every aspect of the world and every plot line, working with an IP might not be for you because there is a lot that's given to you and you're going to work with story teams and people who are very responsible for the lore of that world. And that's the area where you have to just realize that you're lucky to be in that universe mm-hmm. and that's where you need to support them, not the other way around. Makes now, the, the creative expression in that experience, though, is, okay, how do you relate that to a game system? And that's where it was, you know, again, very constrained for us because in dealing with Star Trek, as I was describing earlier, we really, really wanted to deliver this experience that wasn't just going to be about combat. We had interesting combat features in the game as well. Mm-hmm. Not the core, but the the key of this game was the storytelling experience where we were really very focused on delivering Gene Roddenberry's vision. And that also was a constraint. It was a really hard constraint. It forced us to be creative, right? Because yeah. we had to come up with a new game system because so few people had ever succeeded at working with Star Trek in a game and, and actually making it a really fun game to play. So cons- I'm a big fan of constraints. Um, the more constraints you have in a game, it may be that you'll be more successful because usually you don't want more and more and more and more yep. and infinite expressibility in a game. You want something that channels you in a certain direction and forces creativity. Yeah, it is often a trap that uh, kind of younger, newer game developers fall in is that you come up with everything that you want. You have this amazing design and it's hundreds of pages long and then you show it to your developers and they're just, you know, think you're insane. 
Um, <laughs> so having that that initial kind of constraint right from the beginning is probably helpful from having to chop a lot of things out when the reality of development actually uh, comes around. Mm -hmm, exactly. Awesome. I appreciate that that insight. That was great. Um, I have uh, I've been very fortunate to have known you for uh, for a number of years here, um, working in the uh, in the game space and the mobile space. Uh, I've had the opportunity to follow a lot of the uh, the posts and the blogs that you've put out online. Uh, we will put a link down in the uh, in the footnotes here on how to uh, to get in touch with you and see uh, a lot of this wisdom that you share. Uh, and I have to say, you were one of the leaders in the kind of Web3 revolution that came along. Uh, you were posting up there before a lot of people uh, were really aware of the possibilities of Web3, well before I was in the industry. And uh, I have to say, you taught me uh, quite a lot of the, the possibilities and what we could do in Web3 as game developers. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm kind of curious, you know, when, how and when did you make that transition from, you know, I guess what we call Web2 games, which is traditional, you know, mobile in-app purchase style to this more blockchain powered Web3 space? Well, I don't know that I, that I consider it as transition so much as I added a lot of capabilities to my overall toolbox, because I, I look at the whole universe of games that could exist and for certain kinds of games, you need a certain kind of economy and for you know certain kinds of games a scarcity economy or economy where people trade with each other or where the composability of web3 adds adds the building blocks that we stack things together and make interesting new objects out of subcomponents all those are a few of the several reasons to to want to build a web3 game it's not obviously a, a fit for every single kind of game a single player storytelling game, for example, um, where you just go through an adventure, you don't need web three things for that. Although I'm sure that as I say that people listening to this are like, Hey, I've got a great idea for how you would add web three. Totally. Like I don't, I also am a big believer that, um, you know, first of all, there's an exception to everything in games. And and number two, like, I can't think of all the ideas that, you know, that's, that's kind of why I went to making beamables because we could help thousands of people build games instead of me have to come up with all of the ideas for the next game. But you, when we think about like the emergence of web three, it actually started around the time of Star Trek timeline. So little known fact, Star Trek actually has web three features in it that we're we're still waiting to see them uh emerge but I we worked not know that yeah we worked with forte four or five years ago and mm -hmm. and generated about a million wallets um via star trek timelines because we started to add some web three components where you could earn certain nfts and slow drip uh economy features that were on chain to that um they're all present in the game. They haven't been rolled out yet. We'd love to see it go out there someday, but whether or not it does emerge, it taught us a lot, taught me a lot about those systems. I had, you know, mined Bitcoin and things like that even years earlier than that. So I'd always been like crypto curious and had messed yeah. around these things and, and collected some of the currency. So it, it wasn't as if I came at it as a blockchain, blockchain noob either. Um, but we used Star Trek timelines as as this petri dish to experiment a little bit with the kinds of components that you could bring into an established Web two game. Mm -hmm. And this is a tricky thing, by the way, because if you have an established free to play economy, free to play is almost always an inflationary economy where you don't care about the fact that one individual user might end up with infinity of a currency, for example, yeah. or lots and lots of items because you have designed the game in such a way that you're the monopoly supplier of all the items. You are the form of distribution. You're the central banker. Like as the free-to-play game system designer, you have fulfilled all of those economic roles. Well, it gets more complicated with Web3 because you're opening up cases where that will no longer be the case. And one of those things you know, ideally would include the ability for players to trade items with each other, just like you can trade a Magic the Gathering card with your friends or a Pokemon card with your friends. So that opens up a whole new dynamic to the way people are going to think about their game strategy, their game tactics, 
it certainly has a huge impact on the game economy. So for us in this game, while these features didn't make it out, or at least haven't made it out yet, we decided that we kind of had to firewall those aspects of the economy a little bit and any of the collectible items that would be associated with the tradable economy using NFTs wouldn't really intersect in any way with the traditional free-to-play economy. So Mm -hmm. they were additional features that were added to the game. So that was my first introduction to, to Web3 gaming. And, And it was actually about that time that I just started to see all of these gaps in, you know, all the online systems, economy, social systems, cloud code, data persistence, and then, of course, blockchain integration that stood in the way of building big games. And, And that was the true transition over because that was from being a game developer of one game at a time to creating a technology platform to help everybody. Mm-hmm. And the big thing that I realized in that transition from game developer to game technologist was everyone had always been building these things in silos. Yeah. And that's, and especially the back end. Like, while there are, are pieces of code and APIs that you can draw upon, everyone essentially creates this siloed development effort inside their own company. And that means accumulating a lot of responsibility, a lot of technical debt and a never ending need for middleware just to wire these pieces together. And when I looked at blockchain, I just said, geez, that's going to be another exponential increase in complexity. Mm-hmm. And history has proven that true. Like so few web three games have been able to get off the ground over the last year, I think largely because people have gotten so caught up in a lot of the technology and the base infrastructure kind of things standing in the way. So uh, we're we're helping people now get past that so that they can focus on the creative aspects, the economic aspects, the experiential aspects. Mm-hmm. Of yeah, the I know game. a lot of a lot of developers quite often think that they have the the right solution, the only solution to kind of developing their back end. It's their game, it's their engine, um, and they really do quite often reinvent the the wheel. I know on some projects that I've been on, it's been uh, assumed that, you know, well, we just have to do it ourselves because that's the way you develop a game. I am kind of curious, you know, as a a technologist, as kind of an expert in the industry, you uh, set forth to make a a tool set that would allow developers to really, you know, as you say, focus on the creativity. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the technology that you guys have built out and why... I guess why you would think that developers shouldn't reinvent the wheel and perhaps work with a a solution such as yours. I think you'd ask the same question to people 10 years ago, but about 3D engines. Mm -hmm. So there was a time at which you really had to create your own 3D engine if you were going to build a 3D graphics game. And it meant assembling all these little components together. You'd be doing everything from matrix math to shader programming to complex geometry. And then you'd have to build the whole workflow system around it to actually enable it. And you'd have to create scripting systems to make it programmable. There really wouldn't be any extensibility because you would have to create your own middleware and add components one piece at a time. Mm -hmm. So along comes Unreal and Unity who really standardized a lot of the way we now use 3D engines. So what did they do? Well, they took that core set of 3D graphics programming, they made it more immediately accessible. They embedded it within visual tools that made you capable of composing the elements together, but they didn't stop there. They also made it scriptable and programmable. They made a framework for extending it. And then they even took it to the next level and created extensibility through marketplaces where developers in the community can add new capabilities like through the Unity Asset Store or the the Unreal Marketplace. So I looked at that and I said, that's what's really needed for the backend because the backend is still being built in the same way. So the problem is that realistically building a backend that's going to scale takes an enormous amount of effort. And if it doesn't scale, it's going to fall over when you ship your game, which has been the doom of too many other you know, otherwise good looking products, but they just couldn't support the user population. Mm -hmm. So that just injects huge risk. But then more importantly, 
you have to increase your velocity through the process to one of the most important determinants of success in game development is just the velocity with which you incorporate feedback from people, people being your design team and your product managers, as well as people in the form of your customers, your players, and the way they interact with the game and what they like, really compressing that cycle time down a lot so that you move through development at the fastest speed in a way that gives you the most tries at features and incarnations of things so that you can ship the best product. So if you are building all these features, online features that require like a back-end programmer and a front-end programmer to have to collaborate and figure things out along the way, you've just more than doubled the complexity. Anytime you have two programmers working on the same feature, it's much more than double the complexity. I don't know the exact yeah. multiple, that's gonna change for each game, but it's at least twice as complex, if not exponentially more complicated. And you're lucky if you're able to do it with just two people and not a more extensive team beyond that. Yeah, two, two is usually the minimum that people encounter, but you're right, it can be several. It could be a whole team of people to implement a really complex feature. So those kind of things just slow down your velocity so much. So what are your risks now? Maybe you don't ship the game at all. Maybe you're running out of cash at the time when you really need to be getting a soft launch out the door. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're shipping a game, but it really hasn't had the number of iterations and input into the development process that your features are really going to need for your players to love it. And then once you ship, are you able to then not only scale up and have a big audience, but learn from that big audience. How do you incorporate the learning of what events work and what kind of aspects of your economy work? What features do people really enjoy so that you can rapidly improve those features? A lot of that you don't really know, unfortunately, until a big audience comes along and starts engaging with the game. So we want to increase velocity through that whole process. And we really strongly urge anybody to think twice before they take that on because not only do they give up the velocity improvement, they unfortunately don't realize how much technical debt they're taking on. It just gets really expensive. Most game publishers that have figured out how to do this at scale have spent millions of dollars, if not tens of millions of dollars, figuring all that out. And, and you know, Beamable, between Beamable, our business today over the last three years. And then some of the technology we built back at Disruptor Beam that turned into Beamable, like we spent over $20 million building this stuff. So yeah. you don't have to do that. Um, I would instead use your capital to iterate, prove, allocate it towards the things that players are actually going to care about. And by the way, your engineers love working on features that your player, typical engineers, most engineers like working on the features that yeah. Your players actually are delighted by not not like a database scaling system that that no one's ever going to really know about other than yourself. So it's more fun to build a game that way, and you have a much higher likelihood to build something that will be successful. It is uh, much more interesting to develop that lightsaber duel that you were talking about as opposed to the the back end that records the data of the lightsaber duel. Exactly. Yeah, I think many uh, many developers get caught in that trap of not being game developers, but technology developers. And, you know, you know, as you were saying, you've got folks like Unity and Unreal and back-end technologies um, such as Beamable that really allow you to focus on what it is that you want to make. You want to make the game, you want to make the fun. And, you know, smart people such as yourself have developed that uh, technology capability already so that you don't have to, again, reinvent the wheel, reinvent the lightsaber to... Uh, be able to uh, to make those type of games. I, and I think that phenomena that you just described of teams being technology oriented is something that um, for th that has affected blockchain game teams worse than average mm -hmm. if you look across the game industry. And it makes sense to me because a lot of the people who were initially excited by it and saw a lot of the economic opportunities within it they came at it from either an economic or technology centered background. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those teams were just formed out of the enthusiasm around that instead of the enthusiasm and frankly, the experience in 
building, designing, and shipping a game to yeah. someone, which is this ultra chaotic process, requires tons of creativity, a lot of discipline through it, and just a lot of hard won lessons about like the craft of game making and, mm -hmm. and how to value and prioritize things through the process. And not all of it is obvious, especially to teams that haven't built a game before. So I think that's why a lot of teams that we've seen in Web3 haven't produced. Now that has changed a lot. I'm starting to see Web3 games that are super capable and, and are populated by veteran game designers and game developers. And, and the common theme that I hear from some of these folks, by the way, is you know they've been at it for a year or two and they're still looking at a year or two more before they're going to ship a game or maybe not even reach like an open beta for a game until that time frame. Not unsurprising because it does take time to make a game because game making is a craft. Absolutely. It isn't a deterministic process where you just have to just, I know engineering has its own complexity. And by the way, we're an engineering company at, at Beamble. Like we're, we're 20 people. It's all, it's practically all engineers. So like all we do is solve engineering problems. So I'm not taking anything away from people who do that as a living, but it's a different kind of process. It's about breaking down problems into its subcomponent parts and attacking them and like relentlessly sort of, you know, breaking it down and, and just hammering away and having really great engineers just sort of solving through that process, discovering the edge cases and, all that. So like that happens in game development too, but it's a little bit different because you've got this whole component of fun involved. Yep. And it's this almost unquantifiable property of game development where the fun, it kind of can sound fun when it's in a GDD, a game design document. It can seem fun even in the earliest stages of prototyping because it kind of looks cool. And but, then you uh, get a fully yeah, formed yeah. feature on the screen and it's like, oh, geez, it's actually not that fun. That, that's what we encountered with Star Trek Timelines in the first several versions that we worked on, which is, okay, it looks cool, but it's just not fun yet. And that part of it is a huge risk in the process and a huge area of uncertainty, which makes game development very different than any other kind of software engineering. And it is a kind of software engineering. It's it's a weird Absolutely. kind of software engineering that blends entertainment and storytelling and narrative with engineering. Um, but that's that's what's different. And I just think teams need to focus on the fact that there's all that complexity, uncertainty, and risk in the creative and fun factor elements and not get embroiled in all of that additional complexity and risk of the technology of breaking down the pieces, making sure they scale, handling all the edge cases. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's a lot to take on. Yeah. I'm sure as a, as a game developer, uh, I'm sure you've seen many times, you know, you, people ask, Oh, what do you do for work? It's like, Oh, I make video games. And they're like, Oh my God, that's so cool. You know, Oh, you must just love your work. I'm like, yeah, it's work. I, I love what I do, but it's definitely still work. <laughs> So I'm kind of curious. Yeah, it's funny. People ask me, are, 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 am I having fun? And the, and the answer is I have fun a lot of the time, but it's not nonstop fun to either be a game developer or an entrepreneur. Right? It's a lot of work. It's very hard work. There's a lot of bleak hours. There's a lot of waking up in the middle of the night, like, holy shit, what am I doing here? This is really hard. And, and I don't see through the fog of war quite yet. You just got to keep exploring. And, um, that's that's just the nature of things. I I wouldn't do it if your principal reason for doing it is because it sounds super fun to you. Yeah. Like I said, you'll have fun. Do it because you won't gain creative fulfillment any other way. Like you've got to make a game, you've got to build a company, you've got to create a technology. Like those are all great reasons. Like it's got to be sort of at your core like fulfillment level. Like that's why you're put here on this earth to build these things. Uh, and the fun will come at times along with those yep. pits of despair that you'll have to claw your way out of from time to time or more often than we we want to admit. Yeah, I think every every developer has that uh, that moment where you've just kind of stared, you got the thousand yard stare and you're just kind of wondering, <laughs> all right, what's next? Because this is just completely blown up on me. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been there myself and, you know, sometimes a, a shot of whiskey and a, a good night's sleep will get you back on track. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> you've unfortunately just reached the abyss and it's time to, uh, to make another choice. But that is the, uh, the nature of the beast that I think most of us in game development uh, have to deal with. It is uh, definitely a lot different than, uh, than most other software or other types of jobs out there. But, uh, you know, end of the day, we still do get to have a lot of fun. So that part is uh, definitely makes it well worth it. I'm kind of curious with the with the work that you have done and the stuff that you've seen on on Web3 game development and blockchain development. Uh, is there anything in that area that you know, stood out to you where you said like, whoa, that is super cool. Like the, the moment where you're just like your eyes just kind of bugged out and you said like that. That is the the potential that this blockchain really brings to gaming. Yes, um, but but let me Glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, let me unpack that a bit. So uh, I'll 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 start by directly answering your question. Then then I just want to follow that with a couple of other thoughts. But sure. so a lot of people get kind of wrapped up in the more technical aspects, composability, for example. It's super cool that like marketplaces could exist where people could trade an item um, and you don't have to build it yourself. Those are all cool things about these technologies. I don't think the main advantage of Web3 is necessarily technological, although people will no doubt invent some really innovative, interesting, and even fun things that you just can't see through that proverbial uh, fog of war that I was referring to earlier. Yeah. I think it's psychological. So w- let me elaborate on that. So if you look at the idea of ownership, mm-hmm. the way that someone approaches things that they own is qualitatively and then even quantitatively different than something that they don't own. Most people understand now that when you play a free to play game, you don't own any of those items in the game, meaning that they can be taken away at anyone's whim, that there's no continuity beyond the game, that that item is very locked into a very specific economy that has no future history. Now, everyone will can jump in and talk about like all these ideas of like, well, what is the value beyond the lifetime of a particular game? That would be a whole discussion of itself. Mm-hmm. But the core idea, though, is the idea that you really do you really do own something in a Web three based economy. You own something that can live beyond the game, that can be traded. The tradeability of it, the lifetime of it, are the technical pieces that just help prove to you that you actually do own something within the economy of that game. The thing that's still very untested in Web three games today is whether it will matter. But I think the evidence we have looking at something like Magic the Gathering is that it really does. Because the way I personally just, you know, focus group of one approach my Magic the Gathering collection of actual cards or even the Magic the Gathering online game that was created like 20 years ago where, again, there was real trading and that you could even like redeem a complete collection for a physical copy of the cards, essentially one of the first digital (laughs) products, (laughs) albeit not a web three. I mean, really even before, well before even Bitcoin. So they didn't have those ideas to build it on, or or I suspect they might have. Um, It's just different than the way I think of it in something like MTG arena, which is structured more as a, as a free to play game. So Owning things is a psychological shift that I believe is still under, or I hypothesize is an underestimated quality of Web3 games. And if I'm right, it'll be borne out in higher conversion rates, higher rev- average revenue per, per user playing the game, um, things like that. So that could change the economy of these games very dramatically. And and it could also change the kinds of economic incentives available to game developers, things like royalties to tap into people continuing to trade within the economy, um, incentives to create more content and add it to the world. Like, so all of those things changes 
the economics dramatically of the way you're going to approach these things. But I do think that the really interesting feature of Web3 comes down to ownership, not as sort of like one of these libertarian ideals that you'll run into continuously as you traverse the worlds of Web3 and crypto economies, but mm-hmm. more as a psychological property of someone feeling more connected and their property being a little more everlasting than it would otherwise. And then the whole way they approach the game may in fact be different. Over the next year to two year time horizon, we're gonna see a lot of the first kinds of games that are starting to ship with very high production values, really high fun factor. Um, and we'll see from that how big of a difference it makes, but, uh, but I suspect that it could be a, a really big difference for the games that are, that are really well-designed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to work with the, uh, Splinterlands team, mm-hmm. uh, and they, uh, we, we did a, uh, community event, uh, in Vegas last year. It was great. You know, they had uh, 500 people from their community that, you know, on their own uh, dime flew out there to meet the team, to uh, do some tournaments, uh, have some dinners together. And it was amazing to be able to sit down with a lot of these folks. You know, some of them were, you know, just players and they had built their their decks over time. Some of them mm-hmm. were kind of high value players that had purchased a lot and were, were really, uh, I guess, high value members of the community. You know, it was amazing to just kind of sit down with them and really see the the connection that they had with the games. And it it was different from other projects that I've had uh, that been fortunate enough to work with in the past that were kind of traditional Web two, where you you know maybe owned uh, owned a tank or owned uh, a creature in the game, but you it was part, it belonged to the to the game. It didn't belong to you. And that idea of you know, as you're saying, that connection that you know, I own this card, I own this token. uh, And, you know, I am now I have a much more vested interest in seeing the success of the game. So I think that's definitely, you know, what you're saying there and the the changes that are coming for game developers as you adopt more of that uh, Web3 mentality is something that uh, is exciting to see. And I think a challenge for a lot of people as well. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a new category of games. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that existing um, game franchises necessarily adapt to it. it. It probably is going to be the domain of, you know, examples that you just gave that where they're building new IP, new game experiences. Um, and, you know, the, the example that's often trotted out by people who are saying, look at, look, open economies don't work is something like, Diablo three, when they introduced the auction house and people could trade within it. And and here's another topic. We could just spend an hour just talking (laughs) about Diablo three, what went right, what wrong in that. And then what did they learn and bring into Diablo four, which apparently is don't have that kind of auction house, but um, yeah, but here's, this is where it comes back to psychology. Do not underestimate the psychology of the player in terms of how they approach a game and the framing of that psychology will come from a few things one of them is this ownership concept that i was talking about earlier but another framing that they'll approach it a game from is what is the brand what is the ip and what does it stand for the fact is diablo as an ip didn't have that kind of economy before diablo 3 mm-hmm. so it was a mismatch in audience expectations and the way people wanted to interact with that kind of game. So I don't think that that was the right kind of game to actually test that out. And you probably could make an action RPG game or a roguelike that has a lot of those properties and is built from the ground up for an open economy Mm -hmm. where there aren't these preconceived notions about brand economy gameplay systems and whatnot, what it means to be quote unquote play to win or whatever people want to describe the those Diablo 3 systems as and be successful in it because it's new and you because you're able to frame the experience and the psychology from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So really hard to retrofit new economic structures into 
an established IP where a lot of that thinking, a lot of that psychology has already been formed for your audience. Yeah, that, uh, I would absolutely agree with you on that. Um, you know, we've seen uh, seen that type of stuff with some of the clients that we work with. Um, it's always better for you know a company like Economics Design if we can get in there early and work with the designers and bring some of that experience that we have uh, on the systems design. And you know, I think perhaps even more importantly, some of the uh, the lessons learned and the you know the risk alleviation that we can bring there. Because once you put that economy out to the world, especially in Web three. You know, their bad actors will oftentimes do whatever they can to make money for themselves. So if you have exploits out there that weren't uh, caught in the design and there's ways to to drain value out of the economy, uh, people will definitely find ways to do it. So, um, yeah, we are always happy to help and bring that wisdom to uh, to the table. Well, that's another lesson. The speculator is has got to be a minority of the economic activity in your game. Mm -hmm. At least that's that's kind of my view today. We we still haven't quite seen a lot of these next gen double A, triple A kind of game experiences scale out. And then we'll learn a lot more about how people interact within them. But but you know, it just it can't be driven by speculators yeah. or else you you haven't really attracted the right customer. The the specul the speculator can exist. They mm -hmm. can even be a valuable part of the economy speculators exist in magic the gathering people yep. collect cards and enjoy collecting and they mm -hmm. enjoy selling them and trading them but that's not most of the reason why people play magic the gathering mostly people play it because it's a super cool game you get to be creative and build decks and play with your friends most people aren't even into the tournament scenes for magic the gathering like that's another category so like if you break down the the audience of your game, it should be like speculators should be this little piece, maybe whoever the esports or competitive playing population, that's another kind of a small piece. But the vast majority of your audience are going to be people who are just there for the fun and the personal experience yep. and the personal narrative that they come at it with by playing that game. And if you see either of those other couple of categories being the dominant force kind of taking over the way people think about your game. Hey, games, games always have exceptions to the rules. So someone will point out where I'm wrong, I'm sure, but you're, but I'm not wrong about the normal or the average case of this, the normal or the average case requires a population driven by bread and butter players who are just showing up day after day to have fun and they don't care about making money where they're making money means speculating on collectibles or making money through being a top you know hundredth of one percent competitive tournament player yeah no, i'm definitely uh, i'm of the opinion that the i think the speculators are important i think that they are an interesting part of web3 that you know outside of like the collectible cards and in the past we haven't seen that as a game developers uh, I definitely agree with you that you know they shouldn't be your focus but I also really don't think you should ignore them I think you know uh, smart developers can come <laughs> come to it and you know have portions of the game that can be very interesting for the speculators as long as it doesn't take away from the the fun of the game and the gameplay and the ability for people that maybe aren't paying the game and just kind of like, you know, free to play uh, experience there that um, they can come in and play and the speculator still has a, uh, a, a value in the game and some interest in there and, you know, designing with them in mind as opposed to trying to exclude them or include them. Uh, I think it's kind of more important to have a an economy and a design that really takes into account all these different personas and it's, it's super hard you know if it was easy everyone would do it um but uh, i think where I think they it's... yeah i think where they add is liquidity too right and if we go back to the idea of an ownership economy if we want to convey the concept of ownership to the player then ideally you need a way for them to exit their positions and sell things yes. So I have a collection of thousands of Magic the Gathering cards in real life. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to sell them, I could, I could sell almost all of them for something. It might be that some of the more common ones, I just have to package into like a big bundle of like buy and a bunch of cards. Yeah. So, but I would have, I have liquidity of this Magic the Gathering collection that I have no intention of ever selling because I just like <laughs> having these things. So but, sad. Uh, 
Yeah, but um, but the fact that I could sell them means something to me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there are some speculators out there, as long as they're you know, not 90% of your economy or 51% of your economy, like they, they bring a lot of value to the economy because they're adding liquidity and they're communicating to me as someone who more wants to own and keep things for a long time, mm-hmm. that ownership actually exists because it's hard to say you own something if there's no, if there's no buyer yeah. for it, I guess you still have it. Like I've but- got this pen and I own it and... <laughs> What does that mean? Same as yeah. same as a rock, I guess. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I also own that. I have that drudge skeleton, and man, that's going to work really well <laughs> in some deck that I build next week. <laughs> you had a cool looking drudge skeleton from a long time ago, or the new one with a cool looking border on it. Like there's so yeah, many you know. creative ways to to take the the sort of the commons and and make it all feel new and interesting and exciting again. Oh, very true. So we've got a, a few minutes left here. Uh, John, and you know, there is a question I would love to ask you, uh, because I think you have a, a unique perspective that uh, a lot of people uh, that are coming into the industry, uh, you know, might be looking for guidance on. So as an entrepreneur, um, and somebody that has started companies and been successful, what, um, what kind of advice would you say to somebody that, you know, wants to start a game studio they've got three friends and they have figured out the the next great game that's going to take the world by storm uh what kind of advice would you give them as they are getting out of the basement and ready to uh to start that company for real i have so much that i could say about this um that's the the next podcast yeah so i guess number one is do you want to build a great game more than anything else in your life right now? I, I think this is something that I put on a list of 75, 80 things that I, that I just had learned from game development mm-hmm. um, that I, that I put on my, my blog and, and Twitter. Um, if you don't, I would question the mo- the motivations and, because it can't just be something that sounds nice that you want to do it's got to actually be the most important thing that you're going to want to do because this is going to be incredibly hard yep. with kind of the odds against you of success. So you better find a lot of fulfillment in the journey of making the game itself. You better feel like you're learning a lot from the process of making the game. Um, but you really have to want to be able to put an awful lot in your life on hold if you're going to make a a great game Mm -hmm. in favor of making the greatest game that you can make. Um, And I, a lot of people I think don't want to hear that or they don't want to believe it. Yeah. Um, But in my experience, the teams that have gone on to build great, great world beating games, they've taken that to heart and they do it. And again, of course there's exceptions and someone will point out the exception. i by the way, tell me the exceptions. I would really love to learn from all of those exceptions. But for the most part, <laughs> but for the most part, these are teams that went all in on it and they just wanted to build a great game. Um, and they wanted to do it more than anything else that they could do at that mm-hmm. point in time. Probably because it's a burning creative obsession that they've got eating away at them if they don't. Yep. Um, beyond that, I think a lot of it goes into team composition. And if you share that value about wanting to make something great. The other thing is just sharing the same taste, frankly, mm-hmm. like harder, harder said than done. And, and by taste, I mean all the important things that are going to be manifested through this game, Yeah, the artistry, this kind of story, but also the kind of economy. Like if someone's like, if you're building a free to play game and someone's got on that startup team has deep reservations about building a free to play game for whatever reason, I don't know if it's going to work out. It's going to be hard to make that work. Same thing for a blockchain game. It's like, like it's fine to go through a process of learning and then getting there. But if like you're off to the races and building a game and, and people on that team have deep reservations about blockchain and what it all means and not sure they really want to be building that kind of game. I don't know if it's going to work out. So taste in a shared value system are really going to be core across that whole team. Beyond that, it's just the composition of individuals. And I think 
we're moving into a world where smaller and smaller teams are going to be able to do really amazing things. And, and the core of just about any team is going to be, you know, someone who's got a great artistic vision, meaning the visuals and the way you're going to communicate storytelling through the visual impression that the game makes. Someone who is a great game designer who understands the features and systems and how it relates to economies and experiences that you're going to have. And you know, definitely a hacker who understands the technology and the programming and how all those pieces are going to be smushed together into this overly complicated organism that we call a game. So uh, that's like the core of just about any game team. Maybe some teams will have like one or two other people that's more dependent on the kind of team. Like sometimes you have a game where the economy is going to be such a huge deal. Like you just need someone who's going to be super focused on, on just that aspect of, of the game, for example. Um, or you've got a game where like the combat mechanic is so core to it that you need someone who's just lived and breathed combat tactical game execution their whole life and just knows how that's going to play out. Like that's maybe one or two other roles, but like, that's your core team. And then everything else that you're going to add, whether that's um, people in the form of labor or tapping into generative AI to make pieces for you, or whether it's off the shelf technologies like a Beamable or uh, a Web3 marketplace to provide the, tr the exchange for your game. All of those things are just ways to accelerate and scale up the efforts and core competencies of, of that team. And I definitely urge you to keep the number of people on the team uh, as small as it can be. Okay. Don't hesitate to add people when you really need it. The game, the team also needs to be as big as it needs to be, but hesitate about adding extra people because that's where all the complexity of game development resides, whether that's, the fiefdoms, the politics, the miscommunication, all the time that you need to kind of align the interests of a team, plus just the added complexity of more steps and the brittleness that that entails. Well, and the and the burn rate for the team. Absolutely, you're going to have less cash for sure. So, uh, so John, where can people find the uh, this wisdom that you've been sharing over the years? Well, if you need a, some backend technology to build an online game, blockchain or not, uh, mm -hmm. Beamable is the best way to do that, in my opinion. So definitely go we'll, to Beamable.com. We'll share that link down below. <laughs> and, How about for uh, your personal, uh, personal yeah, insights? For me, um, JRate off on Twitter is a great place. I'm on link, very active on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I've got a blog um, called Metavert Meditations. So check me out at, at any of those. All righty. Uh, you know, John, I want to give you a couple minutes here to maybe discuss a little bit about Beamable and let people know, you know, what uh, what the capabilities are there and uh, how you can help them. Sure. Just to maybe expand on what I was describing earlier, I'll, mm -hmm. there's kind of three tiers to the capability of live services and live ops. So there's the dashboards at the top, which is yep. where people schedule content, look at player accounts, assign items, do customer support, do campaign messaging like all of those day-to-day -day product management, marketing-oriented communication kind of functions. Yep. So there's dashboards for that. that. That's the surface level. Then there's the things that you need to add to the 3D engines to make it actually easy to add those capabilities to your mm -hmm. game. So that's plug-and-play systems for Unity and Unreal, where you can just bring those capabilities in without adding new programming languages a separate IDE or a separate tech stack. And then that's all built on a foundation where for cloud code and data store that's extensible and open and supports millions and millions of users and works with the languages you already know. So for example, if you're a Unity developer, you're used to programming in C-sharp, well, now you can script your whole server capabilities and all the game rules that need to be server authoritative. Done in C sharp too, so it's like a magical extension to what you're doing in the 3D engine anyway, and and that's what that that's what Beamable's built. Our our aspiration is to be like what Unity and Unreal did for the front end. We're trying to do that for the back end, meaning 
all those capabilities in a fully integrated way, in a way that's extensible, programmable, and then even has a marketplace of extensions from other developers that you can add to your game servers. That sounds like a, an amazing way to get to market faster. So I think uh, you know developers that are more concerned with perhaps the the creative side, you know, definitely look at uh, at your service there. And people that are veterans of the technology aspects of this, I, I, uh, if you've built this, you know how hard it is and, and how brittle it can be, and we can help a lot. So Absolutely. we'd love to talk to you. All righty, John. Well, I appreciate your time so much today. You definitely gave us a, a lot of insight and some uh, great uh, stories from the uh, from the Star Trek development. I think uh, a lot of developers are probably jealous that you've been able to uh, play with that IP. Uh, we have... Uh, the links to get in touch with you down below. I definitely encourage people to check out your blog and the uh, uh, the info that you share on LinkedIn. I know I've been watching that for years. Uh, and you know, for myself, if you need to get in touch with me, I am at uh, Econ Rob on Twitter, and you can reach out to us at Economics Design uh, if you have any economy questions. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Rob. All right, have a great day. Bye.